0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I want to take you to the 8th chapter of John. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be free? Jesus replied, Verily I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free... You will be free indeed. You might want to mentally underscore that or underline it if you have a paper to work off or mark it in your Bible because that's going to be a very significant point this morning. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you that what I have seen in the father's presence, you are doing and what you have heard from your father. And Abraham is our father. They answered, If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, and a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father, which he's implying they're not the children of Abraham or they would act like Abraham, but they're children of another father. And they objected. And they said, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, and I like this, if Abraham were your father, you'd act like Abraham. If God were your father, you'd act like God. So if God were your father, he said, you would love me. I have come here from God. Think about it. I know God. I've come from him. He's my father. And you're calling him your father. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? That's a good question. I think Jesus has the answer. Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. Now he's identified who their father is. I'm sure that didn't make them happy. And you want to carry out your father's desires. They were in alignment with the plans of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. I like that, don't you? What is his native language? It's the language of lies. That's all he can speak. He is a liar and he's a father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin if I'm telling the truth? Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says, and the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The entire eighth chapter is devoted to these episodic accounts of conflict between Jesus and certain people. Jews. Not all of Jews. Some of them were certainly following Jesus and believing in him, but there were certain Jews that were not. And just let me summarize the eighth chapter quickly in these three encounters that happened before we get to the opening scripture that I read. There's the first encounter in which we remember the story where a woman is caught in the act of adultery and she is brought to Jesus. And the Jews, these particular Jews, were trying to cause trouble for Jesus. So they thought this would be a good opportunity to put him on the spot. And they brought this woman caught in adultery and demanded of Jesus. Now Moses said uh, that we have to stone her. What do you say? And they thought perhaps they could trip him up, that he couldn't give a good enough answer without them being able to trap him. So you know the story. Uh, he pauses, he, he writes in the dust, and you can read commentaries on that, and you'll, you'll get people who have interesting theories on what he wrote, but the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote, does it? So whatever you think he wrote there that somebody else said he wrote is just somebody's speculation. That's all that is. <clears throat> we don't know what that was. I have to admit, I wish I did. It's just got that, it's that point of curiosity where you're thinking, what was he doing? What was he writing? Was he just doodling as though to ignore them? What was going on? We just don't know. I know, all, I know many of the theories, but it's all speculation. And he challenged them that if, if they're going to stone her, uh, first of all, he's going to invite only the people who are without sin to do this. Let him without sin cast the first stone. And they were unable to stone her. Now, I've, I've read that story many times, and, and I've thought of the possibility of the background of this, and I can't prove it, it's also speculation. But I've wondered, how does a group of men who conveniently want to trap Jesus just go and find a woman committing adultery? Where do you go looking for this to happen? So that seemed rather convenient. And then for them to all come and say she's been caught in adultery. And then for Jesus to say him who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. If these men who caught the woman in the act of adultery, who are so convicted when Jesus said, whichever one of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. I wonder if these men were not the ones who set up the woman to commit adultery. I wonder if these men, some of them, were not the participants in the woman committing adultery. For Jesus to say, the one who is sinless in this matter, let him cast the first stone. And they were paralyzed. Because they know for any one of them to pick up stones, the rest of the group would not let that man get away with it. They were all in a glass house. You know, who throws stones when you live in a glass house? That's merely speculation, but I I think there's a distinct possibility that she wasn't the only one that committed adultery in that little gathering. So all they did was try and construct this this very crude trap for Jesus to try and and discredit him. The the second encounter in the next set of verses is, is the Pharisees once again go about trying to pick a fight with Jesus. When they hear him say... I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life in them. Now, that irritated them for some reason. Their first objection, you have no credibility. You say, I'm the light of the world. But that's just you saying it. Where's your witness? So therefore, if you don't have a witness, you're not credible. And Jesus said, well, your own law says two witnesses are adequate. First of all, I have my witness and I have the witness of my father. One, two, I am a credible witness. My testimony is credible. Third, he says, you don't even know my father. So you can't say whether he's my witness or not because you don't know him. And I do. Now, there's this tremendous disconnect between Jesus and them because they are rejecting everything he said, but he is speaking pure truth. I know my father. My father bears witness of me and my testimony is valid, and they're rejecting the whole matter. But the fact of the matter is, him speaking the truth causes great anxiety for these people because they just don't know how to argue against the truth. Now, the third encounter is another simple truth that once again irritated them. He said, I'm going to go away, and you'll look for me, and, where, and you will die in your sins, and where I go, you cannot come. And they, they huddled together, and they said, what do you think he's?" means what do you, what is he saying and one of them suggested "Well, oh, maybe he's going to kill himself and we can't go with him which is fortunate so is that what he means when he says where i go you cannot come and and they're wondering who are you anyway and so jesus continues to confuse them with these simple truths when you lift up the son of man You will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who has sent me, he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him, even as he spoke. Many believed in him. Now that just kind of catches you up to the opening scripture. Encounters, three encounters there in the 8th chapter of John. And in these encounters, the reason I shared these with you, I wanted you to see some of the elements dwelling in the character and the nature of these people who are attacking Jesus. We see blindness, jealousy, ignorance, paralyzing legalism, blatant hypocrisy. But in the next section, where I started reading in the 31st verse, Jesus drops a bomb on them. And after we see all these character flaws in these people, Jesus identifies their real problem. He says, what you really need is to be free. That's your problem. You're in bondage. And it made them irate. They vehemently objected to any suggestion that they were not free. You really need to be set free. And they gave this strange answer. They said, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we need to be set free? I'll develop that in just a minute. But you have to understand that this response to this, we we don't quite grasp it as we're reading it. Your problem is you're in bondage. Their objection is their heritage. We are Abraham's children, and therefore, and they draw a very faulty conclusion. Now, let's talk about the denial. First of all, they don't understand bondage. And that's where I want to drive it home to everybody here today. Do you really understand bondage? You might look at yourself and see character flaws. Like we saw of the Jews. Jealousy and strife and ignorance and blindness. Or you may or may not see that. Or you may see it in other people. But when Jesus pointed out to these people, your real problem is you are in severe and gross and unacceptable bondage in your life. They didn't understand what he was saying and they resented the implication. And their understanding of bondage, immediately their mind went to what it means to be enslaved by enemy nations. They didn't understand spiritual bondage at all. Nobody had talked to them about spiritual bondage. Jesus was talking about spiritual bondage, and it went over their head. So they include this statement, we are children of Abraham. What are they trying to make of this? Just think about it for a minute. Are they suggesting that true children of Abraham, through the line of Isaac, are therefore not descendants of the bondwoman, who was a slave, and her son, who was in the family of slaves? Are they saying, we're children of Abraham, we're true children of Abraham, we are children of Abraham through Isaac, therefore we're the free part You want to find people in bondage, go find the descendants of Ishmael. They're all in bondage. We're not in bondage. We're born free. But if that's what they were implying, they were so far off of the subject matter that Jesus was trying to address, they just completely missed the point. Or are they suggesting that none of the descendants of Abraham were ever in bondage? And of course we can't process that because all you have to do is know a little history. And even though Abraham was not a slave, God spoke to Abraham and He told him, Your descendants are going to be in bondage 400 years in Egypt. So Abraham knew what was coming to his descendants. And if you look at the history of Israel, the children of Abraham... Not only were they in slavery in Egypt, they were also enslaved, dominated by Babylon, and Assyria, and Medo-Persia, and Greece, and in the days of Jesus, the Roman Empire owned Jerusalem and the whole land. And whatever provisions they made for the children of Israel to exist and have their own little judicial system was only by the permission of the Romans. They weren't really free. So trying to get your brain around their response where they say, we're children of Abraham, we've never been in bondage. And understanding that they were not thinking in terms of spiritual bondage, you have to wonder... How far these people will go in telling blatant lies just to be argumentative with Jesus? So their response is not an honest response. We've never been in bondage. Of course you have. Hundreds of years your people have been in bondage. Living in denial. Now consider the lies that people in bondage Actually, buy into. First of all, I suggest that people will buy into the lie who are in bondage. I am not in bondage. Several years ago, there was a man in my church who had a severe sexual addiction. This was before we could find many books on the Christian bookshelves written on the subject matter, there were a few. This is before we really had a lot of resource to begin to help people with sexual addictions. And he came to me and explained what it was doing to his life and wrecking his family. And I thought, I've, I, I'm, I'm unprepared for this, so I began to search for some books. And I found one book that was written by a woman who was the wife of a man who had a sexual addiction. And told the story of what she went through. With her husband's problem. And she did a very good job in laying out this subject matter. And she wrote under a pen name. She didn't even use her real name. Because she really was so embarrassed. She didn't want her name or her husband's name to be out there. I remember in the book. As she was describing the nature. Of people with this sexual addiction. And she said it's like being in a house that's on fire and saying, it's not hot and I'm not here. And I remember that, that example that she gave because this applies to more than just people with sexual addictions. It applies to people in all kinds of bondages. It's not hot, I'm not here. And Jesus is telling them you're in bondage and they very clearly deny that and say, we're not in bondage. And we all know the history of how, even if they were referring to the bondage of nations possessing them, how they were in complete denial of that. And obviously, they were completely missing the point of spiritual bondage. And so we wonder, do people react the same way to the subject of bondage today? Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, of the people we have here today, we might have people in bondage that deny it. I'm not in bondage. It's not hot. I'm not here. And the house is burning down around them. The second lie that people in bondage buy into is bondage is not actually bondage. So these people are saying, although they were not technically slaves, they could say, we're not in bondage. But how happy were they not having their own city, their own land, being under Roman authority, ultimately having to answer to the state of Rome? The Jewish religion was only allowed because Rome sanctioned that religion for them out of consideration and compassion. But they didn't have to. They could have shut down the Jewish religion altogether. They didn't have to allow them to have their temple and their worship. And even when Christianity came along in the uh, Roman Empire, it was not a sanctioned religion. Rome did not recognize Christianity. At first it was just a little splinter group off of Judaism and Rome didn't know what to do with it. They're all Jews. Some of them are just acting funny. They're acting weird. It's a faction. They're not getting along. So Rome was under complete, complete control of people's religion and their worship. Now, in the Old Testament, there were laws and regulations written to govern the practices of bond slaves. Those of you who have been in my Sunday night group, we've studied this a couple of times. It's quite an interesting subject. Slavery, I, the word I've just said, what does it create in your mind, when you think of slavery. Here in the United States of America, there's, there's a great chance, an overwhelming chance, that when we say slavery, we think of a very dark era in our nation. We think of severe abuse of humans, owning purchasing and selling and abusing people, slavery. And if we can clear all of that out of our brain without automatically thinking of slavery in the terms and the context, we understand it. Then we have to understand what is the Bible talking about in the Hebrew culture when it talks about slavery. And the reason I'm bringing this up, because this is one of the objections a lot of people have to the Bible and to Christianity is they look at slavery in the Old Testament and they say what kind of a religious system is this and what kind of a god do you serve that allow, allows and condones slavery and even in the New Testament Paul talks to slaves and tells them to be obedient to their masters and and that's a, that's a real sticking point for people as they're thinking in American context and they're applying it to the Bible and saying slavery You guys believe in slavery and and it was not uh, denounced by your Christian leaders? But see, in the Hebrew culture, it wasn't that kind of slavery. It was indentured servitude. It was bond slaves. It was people who owed somebody money and thought the best way for me to pay this money is just to go and give myself to this person to, to be their servant. And every seven years, those people, their debts were forgiven, whether it was paid or not. All you had to do was serve a maximum of seven years, and it was done. It was over. So see, the whole system was so totally different from our concept and understanding of slavery. So in the Old Testament, as they have these these laws that govern bond slaves, their treatment was not cruel and inhumane, as we understand the ugly side of slavery. And then there's an interesting provision in Exodus 21 going along with these laws and regulations that says, if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, I don't want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. And the judge will take him and line him up against the door or against the door post just at a place where the lobe of the ear can be placed flat against the, the wall, the, the door, and taken an all and pierced that ear through, and then, because he's happy to be that servant, he'll be the servant for life to that person because he's had his ear pierced by his master. So if a servant grows accustomed to, to his status and prefers working as a servant for his master, to the prospect of being free, he can go through this ritual and permanently sell himself to his master. That's just the way it's going to be. Let's just make a mark and, and document this. I have two problems with that. My first problem is I have an extremely low threshold of pain. I don't know that I could value having my ear drilled through with a crude awl As opposed to the prospect of just work my debt out and be free. So it doesn't appeal to me. The second problem I have with it is more significant than the first practical part. I don't want to get comfortable in indentured servitude. But that's what happens to people. They get comfortable in the debt that they owe and the master they serve. And they just decide, I think I want to live here. I've grown accustomed to the surroundings. Make the spiritual application. If you're a slave, a servant of Satan, and he wants to mark you as his, and your option is, you can be free, but you choose, I'm kind of comfortable here. I've grown accustomed to my surroundings. I've acclimated. Therefore, I think I just want to go ahead and sell out and be here anyway, after all. I get a meal. I get taken care of. You just surrender. You become complacent. The third thing that people believe is that they're not really in bondage because they can be free any time they want to be free. They just don't want. And you've heard it because you know people who are in bondage to something. Denying the power of their bondage. Denying that their bondage truly has its tentacles wrapped around their soul in this death grip. Denying that their bondage is really stronger than they are. Their cheap and meaningless defense is this. I'm not bound. I can walk out anytime I want. It just so happens I don't want to. As a matter of fact, I can quit. I've quit many times in my life, but the fact is they keep going back. How many of you heard somebody say that? I've quit a lot of times to prove to themselves they're not bound, but they're still bound as you're speaking to them. And they just want to talk about the many times they put themselves through this little test to quit just to prove that they could only to go back and to be so blinded to the reality, the fact they were never free. If they're free, they're free indeed. Not free for a day. Not free for a week. Not free for six months. Free! Free! Three valid truths that pop out at us From the statement in the 34th verse, Jesus replied, Verily I say unto you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. First of all, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Can we get that through everybody's brain? Are you listening to me, young people? Are you going to play that denial game? If you're committing sin and you're thinking you are free to do what you want, the devil already has his hook in your nose. You're not free. You are doing what he wants you to do. Are you listening to me? You're not free. Anyone who sins is a slave of sin. You don't feel like a slave to sin. But this is not according to feeling and sensation. This is according to the truth that Jesus is preaching. If you're sinning, you're a slave. You're not free. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the worst bondage in the world is the bondage to sin. It holds literally millions in its grip. And it operates from countless storefronts. There are the innumerable drug addicts around the world. There are countless alcoholics. There are an incalculable number of sex addicts. There are people addicted to self-mutilation. I've known the children, the young people. I've seen them, that they're cutters. They cut themselves. I don't understand that. I can't get my brain around that. I told you I have a low threshold of pain. But something possesses somebody that in secret they are taking sharp objects and cutting themselves and they bear the scars. And it's not because they enjoy it. It's not because they're free. It's because they are in bondage. They can talk about all the contributing factors and I'm sure there are contributing factors. But the bottom line is... If you're doing these things and destroying yourself, it's because you have a bondage. You need to be set free. And then people are addicted to all kinds of compulsive behaviors that gets weird and bizarre. It might be something that seemingly is as innocuous as addicted to shopping. And I don't say that to be humorous but addicted to shopping where they cannot help themselves and their credit cards are out of control and they own duplicates and triplicates of things that they've bought but they just can't help themselves, they have to spend money. Or people that are exercise addicts, which is different from being exercising and physically fit, but they are so addicted to it that they are pushing themselves beyond any reasonable standards. People who are addicted to overeating. People who are gambling addicts. People who are internet addicts that we've just seen arise in the past few years in our culture. And people, how, how many do we, are, are addicted to video games? And the addictions, they take form anywhere and take advantage of the, of the, uh, technology and the culture because it's all bondage of sin. People who sin are slaves of sin. And that's why it bothers me when Christians talk about their little addictions. I want to tell you, I may not say anything to your face, but I go home and give you a tongue lashing. And so you might be forewarned before you get too casual in your conversations. You better look out where the pastor is and if he's listening. Because if I hear people uh, talking about their little addictions, that doesn't make any sense to me. I thought Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And I think people who take their Christianity seriously ought to be taking their life seriously and not allowed any strongholds, any strongholds in their life, period. I don't mean you can't enjoy things. But if you've got addictions, I don't care how innocuous it may seem, you need to get to work and break addictions in your life through the power of Jesus Christ. It's not right for Christians to have any addictions in their life. Maybe it sounds a little bit legalistic for me to say that, but you have to remember there's such a thing as slippery slopes. There's such a thing as having a conflict in your testimony when you're going to try and minister to somebody else that has an addiction in their problem that just happens to cause more problems in their life than your addiction does. But how can the blind need the blind unless they both fall into the ditch? How can you ever be of any value to everybody else if you're already down in the pit with them? And how's your argument going to sound to say, but my addiction is little. Yours is big. Let's concentrate on yours. Mine is little. But how do you explain that before God? He who sins is a slave of sin. The second truth is, Jesus said, a slave doesn't enjoy the benefits of a permanent family. Only a son enjoys that. The slave doesn't have that kind of privilege. And while there's a lot that I could say about that, I just want to be brief on this point, that the benefits of being set free is that we are fully and completely incorporated into God's family. And when you become a permanent son, a permanent child, a permanent daughter, to have the blessings of the family of God available to you is not available to the person who's walking in bondage. Because if you're walking in bondage, that is what you are a slave to. You're not of God. And Jesus made that argument to these people who declared adamantly, we're of God, we're of Abraham, we're free. And Jesus is telling them, you just think you are. You're lying, you're not. And he eventually came to the point of very clearly saying, you want to know the truth? You're of your father the devil because you're acting like him, you're talking like him, you're lying. And he can't, that's his native language, you can tell. But to be a son is to be entitled to all the benefits of the family. The third truth. Is if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. There was a concept in Judaism about compromised freedom and compromised mixed slavery. There was a concept of being half free. Can you imagine that? Think about that for a minute. That's kind of like a woman being half pregnant. If you are, you aren't. But to the Jews, they created this concept of half-free. And here's, here's the way the concept went. It it's really uh, has multiple dimensions. For one, the Jews recognized half free as people that were permitted to serve their master one day. But because of the master's leniency, they were able to attend to their own business serve themselves on the alternate days. So you've you've got a master, but you're... Bound to Him on this day, and on this day you're not. So they consider those people half free. I don't consider that half free whatsoever. A little time off once in a while. A little respite once in a while. A little rest from your addiction once in a while. A week or two where you're doing just fine, you fall off the wagon, you get up and say, well, at least I'm half free. It doesn't work. The Jews thought it worked because they were designing their theology around their practical experience, rather than around the truth of God. The concept of being half free also alluded to somebody who was in debt to two different masters. And while he paid the debt for one master and was set free, he still owed a debt to the other master. So the Jews said and patted him on the back, well, at least you're half free. Once again, which half is free? Because the whole man is still indebted to another master. So it's playing games with those whole concept of bondage because they didn't like to consider they were in bondage. So they play these word games. Are you a slave? No, I'm just a half a slave. You're in bondage? I'm just in half a bondage. It's so ludicrous. It's, it's incomprehensible. I have to tell this. And, and then I'll ask forgiveness from my wife when I get home. When we were first married, we lived in a Greyhound bus. In this Greyhound bus, I had some temporary lighting at that point that I'd put up that was construction lights, a string of bulbs. And it, it's just temporary. And so we moved into this bus and had these construction lights you plug into the wall because I had the bus wired for 110. I could pull up to a church and plug in. Then we had. And so one bulb went out. And she comes to me wanting to be helpful. And she asks me, is it possible we could have blown a half a fuse? Right then, I knew our marriage was going to be interesting. So with this concept of half fuses and half pregnant, we have to think about people who are half free. It just doesn't work that way. It also, the concept of half free in Judaism, referred to those who paid half of their debt but they still owe the other half, and so the man who's in bondage—he's a bond slave—and he brags to his friend, "He's into this program of seven years of slavery. Three and a half years through, uh, it just kind of works out that he's also got his debt about half about halfway paid off." And so they, "How you doing?" He says, "Officially today, I'm half free." How does it feel to be half free? Feels about the same. <laughs> got to get up and do the same thing every day, but I'm half free. Oh God, all this silly. Associations going on. And I don't think it's just the Jews. I think we still have people who are playing games with their bondages today. And rather than to say I'm in bondage, they're talking about, well, I'm half free. I'm halfway there. I'm halfway out. I've paid half my debt. I got rid of one of my masters. I only got one left. Or he gives me a day off every other day. I'm half free. And none of it is. Sufficient. None of it is acceptable. Because Jesus, first of all, with the people who are spending part of their time serving one master and part of the time not serving him, I want to tell you, Jesus doesn't do timeshare. He does not set you free every other day. He doesn't let you be free on even days and you're in bondage to Satan, because we can rely on that, we can believe in that, because Jesus declared something that just kind of goes sweeping over our head. But it is the most important to make. He says, you people are in bondage. You don't even know it. You're bound. You're covered with chains and shackles. But he said, if you would come to me, I set you free, and I set you free indeed. And it doesn't mean every other day. He said, I can set you free. And Jesus doesn't share his rulership with the ownership of anybody else. Because when you get saved, Jesus doesn't let you have two other masters or one other master. Because he said, when I set you free, you're free indeed. And Jesus doesn't pay half your debt. He doesn't come along and put a down payment on your indebtedness. He doesn't knock it down the payments and you only got a little balance left. When it gets done there's nothing left on the note. It's paid because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. You're not half free. You're free. Because whom the sun has set free is free indeed. And I just wonder why people are content to live in their bondage. It's not hot and I'm not here but the house is burning down. Do you want to be free? It takes Jesus. Bow your heads.